Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Okay, and that's, that's all we're reading today. But since it was so short, we'll read it one more time. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. So today we're talking about treasure and the kingdom of heaven. So to start off with, as we analyze this verse, I just want to kind of go through a little bit of a context background thing. What this verse is, is a parable. And giving a little bit of, uh, I'm sure a lot of us know what a parable is, but just so we kind of have a little bit of a review. A parable is a story used to illustrate the spiritual truth. And there's usually one main point in that, in, within that parable. It's not like you can't really spiritualize over, oh, well, the man is this person and the field is this person. No, the, there's usually just one main point that flows through the parable. Um, but also, you cannot really fully understand the parable unless you know a little bit of the context of what's going on. If I were to preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan, it, it, would be, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't do very good if I, if, I, if I didn't tell you the context of what first century Jews thought of Samaritans, right? It wouldn't make sense to you, but um, for the first century Jews, they hear that parable, and they're like, wow, that makes complete sense. So there's a, there's a sense in which you have to understand the context there. And Matthew 13 is also one of the larger sections of the teachings of Jesus. Um, and it's all about, it's all parables about the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to talk more about the kingdom of heaven in a second, but I just want to imagine for a second with you. Right now, we're, 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 we have a search, we're search committee search team that's looking for a new lead pastor. And I want you to imagine for a second, we find a new lead pastor. That pastor comes up on his first Sunday of being hired and you think that this pastor is going to change the way that the gospel is preached in Sarnia. And he comes up here and he tells this story. He says, true Sarnians know that the best fries in town are at the chip truck under the Blue Water Bridge. Yes, the Blue Water Bridge fries are hot and crispy. All other fries in town are cold and soggy. The Blue Water Bridge fries will leave you with true lasting joy. All other fries will leave you disappointed and longing for more. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he just walks off stage. How weird would that be? Right? It would be incredibly weird, and it's understandable. And that's exactly what the disciples are thinking when Jesus is going through Matthew 13, saying all these parables 
about treasure and fields and finding it and hiding it and buying fields and losing everything. They're like, what is Jesus talking about? So that's why in Matthew 10, in verse 10, you can read back, it says, why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus answers. He says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this is the people's heart, for, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Now, there's a lot in there. But basically what Jesus is seeing is there are obvious things happening in that time. And yet people refuse to believe it. And there are others who see and recognize those things as what they're seeing are evidence of the Messiah. See, every, the, 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 the idea that there was a Messiah coming was not a secret. Everyone at that time was on the lookout for a Messiah. And so, everybody, everybody there was, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Everybody who, who saw Jesus performing these miracles, there was some that saw like, him performing like oh, the, at the wedding of Cana and turning the water, the water into wine. There were some that saw him heal people from all these diseases. Uh, there's, he, he, he brought people back from the dead. He, he, even in verse, even in chapter 12, just before the, he speaks on all these parables, he heals a man's shriveled hand. And the response from people, especially the response from the Pharisees, is like, you'd think it would be like, man, this guy is doing incredible things. He must be the Messiah. But it wasn't. Instead, the Pharisees were like, oh no, we have to kill him. But then at the same time, there were people, the disciples that were seeing these things, and they just knew. They knew right away that he was the Messiah. And so there are things that are obvious, and even in today, we can look to Romans 1.20 that says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nation nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without an excuse even today we can see the work of god in this world but people look at it and they just ignore it they don't believe it there are people who look at us christians who do see that stuff do see god's work in nature and recognize that it's God, and they think we're crazy. They think we're foolish. Now, let's focusing attention more on the parable. I, wanna, I want to discuss what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. 
and that this kingdom was actually one of those secrets that he was talking about the, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. See, the, it wasn't like a secret that only they knew. Everybody knew about this Messiah. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. This kingdom was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so what does he mean by the kingdom of heaven? Now, the word kingdom occurs 40 times in the book of Matthew, and it's a theme that runs through the whole entire book. It's in every single chapter division except for, I think, five of them. Okay, so it's a huge, huge, huge theme in the book of Matthew. And between the two phrases, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, there shouldn't be any confusion there because those two phrases are essentially the same. Okay? Matthew in particular uses the phrase kingdom of heaven due to the Jewish tradition of not using God's name. They did not want to use, because he's, he's writing to the Jewish people as opposed to the Gentiles. Okay? So, how do you avoid using God's name in vain? You just don't use it at all. And so when you're talking to Jewish people, that's why we, it's, it's smart and wise to avoid using um, God's proper name, um, but also, and why this, why Matthew was doing it too. So he used the kingdom of heaven to kind of describe those high and lofty places in which the divine would dwell. But essentially, between the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, there is no difference. So what um, what the people were expecting, though as far as the, polit- uh, the kingdom of God goes, was a political kingdom. And the Jewish people uh, thought that this was coming and that they were longing for the days when they had a king that would rule over them and, and rule in their, in their interests. Okay, their history is full of political figures that ended up being their messianic figures. Okay, I was just listening to Isaiah 36 in, in, in the car as I came down this morning, and they were describing um, Hezekiah and his, his battle between Sennacherib, and it was, um, it was, it was God that um, came in and wiped, the angel of God came and wiped out the, the camp of Sennacherib and sent him running back to Nineveh, where he was then killed by two of his, two of his sons. And I thought about that, and I was like, that is the kind of political unrest that they believed God, God would send the Messiah to alleviate, okay? There is also times that, that are written in, in the Apocrypha that are about the Maccabean revolts, but the, all those, the Maccabean revolts were all, all stories that they would have known as well, um, and they were all political and trying to, to get get towards their interests politically. And so because of this, you'll see throughout Matthew that all these, there's a bunch of figures actually, even just in Matthew, that are thinking the same thing. King Herod believed, even though he wasn't Jewish, he, he believed that the Messiah that was coming was going to be a political figure that would uh, threaten his kingdom. And that's why during the birth of Jesus, he went so much effort to try and kill all the all the boys under two years old because he thought it was going to be a threat to his kingdom. Even John the Baptist was starting to get confused. In Matthew eleven three, he he sends a message to Jesus through his own disciples, sends a message to Jesus, having, having assumed that this was going to be a political kingdom that he was going to establish, he says to Jesus, 
are you really the Messiah? He started having his doubts. And then the 12 disciples themselves continually misunderstood. They always thought it was going to be a political kingdom. Even after the death of Christ, and even after he rose again and met with them in Acts 1-6, they say, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? And they still didn't get it at that time, that it wasn't a political kingdom that Jesus came to establish, but it was a, it was a kingdom within their hearts. And then at that time, that's when Jesus gave them the Spirit of God, came upon them, and they finally understood what exactly the kingdom of God was. The kingdom of God wasn't a physical kingdom. The kingdom of God is the redemptive rule and reign of God through Christ in the hearts of his people. It's a kingdom that would transform their lives now and on into eternity. It was the human heart in which Christ came to reign and to transform us into his own image. So reading again, now knowing what the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. Knowing now what the kingdom of heaven is, what is the cost? And the cost is everything. The man in this parable found something that was worth losing everything for. And Paul even went as far as like his own life he was willing to give up. Philippians 1.21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul knew, having written Galatians, that the life he lived in the body was only possible through the Spirit, through the Son of God and what he did for him. He was crucified with Christ. He no longer lived, but Christ lived in him. And now the life he lived in the body, he lived by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. So living, the only way he was able to do that was through Christ anyway. So if he died... That was only a gain because he was going to be with Christ anyway. I can only hope that I would be that confident if I was in Paul's situation. But it is something that I think we all should continually be thinking about. God never promises that we will keep the things that we have in this life. In fact, the only guarantee is that we will suffer. Jesus does promise, however, everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life, Matthew 19, 29. That is what he promises for anyone who is willing to lose family money status for the kingdom of God. God also never promised our rights and privileges as humans. But what he does promise is those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, John 1.12. In the same way, God never promised us our political freedom, but he has promised for one who has died has been set free from sin. 
We have not been promised our political freedom, but we have been promised that the one who has died has been set free from sin, Romans 6, 9. Folks, this is the good news that should bring you joy. It is the good news that we have the honor and privilege of bringing to the people of Sarnia, of Ontario, of Canada, and around the world. Just think for a second. Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived and he died and rose again to beat death and allow us not only to have eternal life, but to be part of the glorious plan of establishing a kingdom that will culminate in the final days that we haven't even seen yet. We are living in those days right now. That is what we were doing here. And if that doesn't give you immense joy, you are not listening. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So to finish off, how do we apply all of this? And I want, I want, to, I want to go through a few, a few factors that I've considered when I think about when I'm building my kingdom or when I'm building God's kingdom. And one of those factors is, do I really understand God's kingdom? So when it looks like, in speaking of building my kingdom, and you can, I'm going to give you two options here. You can rank yourself 1 to 10, 10 being God's kingdom, 1 being this one, or you can just decide which way you're leaning. Okay? So my kingdom says, I don't have a clear idea about the kingdom of God and its values. God's kingdom says, I understand the kingdom of God, and I want to build it no matter what it costs me. So right now, in your understanding of the kingdom of God, where do you kind of lean? Where do you fall? On a scale of one, one, my kingdom to ten, where do you fall? Another factor to consider would be the factor of ownership. My kingdom says that I tend to view my ministry, my business, my church, my family, all of those things as the kingdom, all of those things God has given those to me. Whereas the kingdom of God says about ownership, my ministry, business, church, family, and all those things, they belong to God. God gives, and he can take away, and he was going to bless, because he's going to bless his name anyway. So as far as ownership, are these things yours or are these things God's? And at any point, if one of these kind of hits you, you're probably not going to resonate with just specifically one or all of them. You're probably just going to resonate with one or two items just like I have. Another factor to consider will be glory. My kingdom says I want to be noticed. My job, my ministry, it's all about me looking good and building my own reputation. Whereas the kingdom of God says, ministry, job, it's all about God. My deepest desire is that he will be honored and glorified. Your kingdom, you're glorified in God's kingdom. God is glorified. As far as success and failure goes, my, my kingdom says, 
For, su for success, I should get the credit, and failure should be blamed on somebody else. God's kingdom says God gets all the credit for the success, and I take the blame for my mistakes and failures. And folks, this is the one that I struggle with. I, in breaking it down a little bit, I don't really struggle with taking credit for my failures. In fact, I, I will take credit for all of my failures. But I do admit that I struggle when I want credit for something. I have a hard time giving that to God. So if that's you, you're not alone. As far as priority goes, my kingdom says I devote most of my time and energy to building my own kingdom. Whereas God's kingdom says about priorities, I spend most of my time and energy in building Christ's kingdom. Who's, where is your energy going? As far as partnering with other people, even within the church, as far as partnering with other ministries in the church, our kingdom says, I don't have an interest, time, or resources for partnering. I see my ministry, my job as competition with other ministries, other businesses, other families. Whereas God's kingdom says, I am willing to work in partnership because God blesses when his body functions together cooperatively. Maybe that's you. As far as the priority of prayer, my kingdom says, prayer is a good idea, but I'm too busy to make prayer a priority. Whereas God's kingdom says, I have so many important things to do that I must give priority to prayer. And this is one that I'm continually learning every day. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com.